Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for bringing us together today. I pray that your spirit would rest upon us as we look to your word for guidance about what it means to be your people. Would you shape us and nurture us and send us out from this place? Amen. So I guess I want to start today just by reading the passage of Scripture that we're going to be working through. We're continuing this series in 2 Corinthians. We're picking up in chapter 4, where we left off last time. So we're going to start here in chapter 4, verse 7. And Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So this is a great passage to show how this Easter theme of death and resurrection and the way that it fits into the inaugurated eschatology we've been talking about really is the foundation that this whole letter is built on. You may remember from the first week, um, we looked briefly at the passages that um, kind of stand at the beginning and the end of the letter in chapters 1 and 13. And Paul had said, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but God, who raises the dead. At the end of the letter, he said, to be sure he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. So, Paul is using this idea of death and resurrection and the way that it plays itself out between the times as the lens through which he understands his own experiences of trial and suffering and also as the lens through which he deals with the situations that he's encountering in this church at Corinth. It's an example of theology becoming very practical. 
And both of these things are going to be going on in our passage today as well. Paul is going to reiterate the way that various trials and limitations and weaknesses serve the purpose of keeping the focus on God and on his power rather than allowing it to curve back on ourselves. Okay, this is, the con- this is in the context of, of his defense of his cross-shaped ministry that we've been talking about and against the, uh, the charges of the super apostles that are criticizing it. So today we're going to look at two main things in this passage. First, we're going to revisit the relationship between weakness and power, death and resurrection. And then second, we're going to take a more thorough look at something that has been mentioned a few times here and there, but that I think is massively important for understanding Paul, for understanding what it means to be a Christian. And that is the theme of participation in Christ. So let's get to it. First, Paul talks about these, this treasure in jars of clay, verses 7 through 9. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, it's worth remembering that this passage immediately follows on the one that we talked about last week, where Paul, just two verses before, had said, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as his servants for your sake. It's also worth remembering that those words are following hard on the heels of Paul's own defense of his cross-shaped ministry against the, the charges of the super apostles and their letters of recommendation, right, where they were more or less boasting in their own credentials. Okay, these were the people who saw, the, who saw Paul as weak and unimpressive, who saw his ministry as, as an example of death leading to death rather than life leading to life, as we've talked about. Okay, this all goes together in one coherent stream of thought. Cross-shaped ministry and the suffering that it involves, okay, being hard-pressed, being perplexed, persecuted, struck down, is not simply the deathly consequences of following a crucified Messiah. They are a participation in the death of Christ so that God's power can be made known. So note that Paul's perspective on this suffering, on this weakness, on this limitation, on this frailty, he actually sees it as a gift. We have this treasure in clay jars. Now, in the last two weeks, we've talked about how what was wrong with humanity is the way that we're curved in on ourselves, right? This being curved in on ourselves is what fractures the four relationships. It's what keeps us from being able to keep the old covenant with with its command to love God and to love neighbor. It's what produces death. It's what causes God's glory to depart and causes us to fail in our vocation to be his image bearers in the world. That curved in nature even took aspects of God's good law and made them a source of boasting in ourselves. We saw it. It made it about us. 
But the beauty and the power of the new covenant is that it was accompanied by God's empowering presence through his spirit. Okay, the spirit restores God's glory and image in us. The spirit brings life. The spirit empowers us to love God and neighbor. The spirit heals those four broken relationships. The spirit is what takes our curved in orientation and bends it back outwards toward its rightful objects, towards God and others. And I think that that's how this weakness, this frailty, this limitation can be seen as a kind of treasure. They prevent us from taking pride in ourselves. When God's glorious power manifests itself in that weakness, it prevents us from having any illusions that it's from us or that it's about us. It's God's power graciously at work in the world. Paul says, the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And that's what helps them to preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Okay, what that is, is that's letting go of being gods for ourselves. That's what it means to be rightly oriented in the service of God and others. And so in doing this, we, we participate in Jesus' own service. We're, we're transformed into the image and glory of God as we keep our gaze on Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, and what he calls us to. And so I think the question it raises, for me at least, is how often do I think of my own limitations, my own frailty this way, as gift, as treasure? It's not often in my case, and I'm sure that's probably true of, of all of us, because Typically, we don't like those things. We like to have our own strength. But in his more direct confrontation with the super apostles that will happen later in the letter, Paul will say twice that if he's going to boast, as we sang this morning, it will be in his weakness. Participation in Christ's weakness is ultimately where true power, where God's power is experienced. And so let's turn to that participation now. So like I said at the beginning, I think that this, this idea of participation in Christ is absolutely central to what it means to be a Christian. What it, what it is that God's done and is doing in Christ and the Spirit in the world. And Jesus, you know, this begins with Jesus. We see Jesus talking about this multiple times in the Gospel of John. It's most, most fully seen in his farewell discourse, which kind of near the beginning of it, he tells his disciples, um, this is in John 15, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so this, this discourse goes on. Um, towards the end of it, he prays for his disciples. And after doing that, he prays for others. He says, my prayer is not for them. In other words, it's not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. All of us. He says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. 
May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So there's some pretty, at least for me, shocking aspects of that passage. It's a pretty radical kind of union that he's describing there, being in Christ, of God being in us, the unity among believers that Christ is praying for there. But it's not any more shocking than the language we find in 2 Peter. Um, in 2 Peter 2, he says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for godliness, sorry, for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And so it's, it's, it's from these passages in, in, in John, in Second Peter, and the passages in Paul that we'll be looking at, that people, some of the early church fathers like Irenaeus and Athanasius um, built, built similar theologies. Irenaeus described Jesus as the one who did, quote, through his transcendent love become what we are, that we might, um, he, uh, sorry, through his transcendent love became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Athanasius called us to marvel at the things Jesus had done, noting that through death, deathlessness has been made known to us, and through the incarnation of the word, the mind whence all things proceed has been declared, and its agent and ordainer, the word of God himself. He indeed assumed humanity that we might become God. This is what lies behind the Orthodox Church's doctrine of theosis or deification. And with these statements, they are not suggesting that we become small g gods, okay, in some independent sense. They're just saying that through Christ and the Spirit, we are united to God in a real and meaningful way. We're united to Jesus through the Spirit. We participate in the life of God. And this theme is way too big and central in Paul to do it any kind of justice in a sermon. And so what I'll do is just take a few particularly relevant texts as a kind of sample, okay, to supplement what we've, what we've seen here and, and to supplement what Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians. So in Galatians 2, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans 6, he says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, 
we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. In verse 8, he continues, Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Romans 8, a very well-known passage, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, because of his spirit who lives in you. In Philippians 3, Paul says, I now regard all things as loss compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. My aim is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, being like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And finally, in Ephesians 2, after describing how Christ died and was raised and was seated in the heavenly places, Paul says that God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, co-made alive us with Christ. By grace you have been saved and co-raised and co-seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All right, so this is absolutely everywhere in Paul. Absolutely everywhere. And 2 Corinthians is particularly saturated with it, okay? We already read in chapter 1, he said, just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, we share in his sufferings. So also our comfort abounds through Christ. We're in chapter 4 right now. It's everywhere in chapter 4. In chapter 5, he says, Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Shortly thereafter, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Chapter 12, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And finally, as we've read before, For to be sure he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. All right. So hopefully that survey gives you a good sense of of just how pervasive this concept is in the New Testament, in Paul, in this letter, and how important it is for our our sense of who we are. What does it mean to be a Christian? All right, so now let's turn to this in our our passage itself. Paul says, 
that he is always carrying around in his body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in his body. He says, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So the, this idea of carrying around Jesus' own death in his body, to me, strikes me as a pretty, a pretty bold statement. But, I mean, it's right in line with what we've been reading so far, what we've been through in these last handful of passages. Paul is describing his own suffering for the gospel as, as carrying that, the death of Jesus around in, in his own body. In other words, his suffering is a participation in Jesus' own suffering. And, and really that only makes sense in light of this union, in, in light of this profound union that's brought about through Christ and the Spirit, all right? Through baptism, the presence of the Spirit, Paul has been united to Jesus. And what we've seen is that it, that's, there's, a, there's an aspect of that that's being united to Jesus in his death. Okay? We've seen how um, through that union, being united to Jesus, Christ lives out his own faithfulness in our lives. And chiefly, as we read, you know, as we read Paul, Christ's faithfulness, his faithful obedience is kind of preeminently displayed at the cross. In Philippians 2, it talks about how Jesus, though he was in the form of God, came in the form of a servant, and he, he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. So that's kind of the, the, the climax of Jesus' own faithful obedience, is his suffering death for us. Okay? And so that's why Paul can say that he, when, when he's participating in Christ's suffering for the gospel, Okay, he's carrying around that death in his own body. So, so there is death, there is suffering involved as we participate in Jesus. There's a, there is a sense in which his death produces death in us, okay, from death to death. But the question, the big question is whether that's the end of the story. And we know, of course, that it's not. So Paul continues that... Um, the death and the life of Jesus go together. There, there's not one without the other. In fact, it's, it's death that is the way to life as far as our understanding, or our theological understanding is concerned. And that's the beauty of, of Eastertide. That's the beauty of this season that we're in, is we see how death and life go together. So Paul says in, in 4.13, It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Now the passage that Paul is citing there is Psalm 116, which was read for our call to worship this morning. And that psalm is an expression of thanksgiving to God on behalf of the psalmist from, from a time where God had delivered him from death. He says, The cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave overcame me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. 
And so the psalm says, I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. In other words, in his cry of distress as he called out to God, he trusted that God would be there to deliver. So what Paul is doing is he's applying that same sentiment to his own circumstances as he suffers for the sake of the gospel, as he carries about the death of Jesus in his own body. He trusts that because he's participating in Jesus' death, God will lead him to resurrection life. It's be, he, he, because Jesus was raised from the dead, as, part, as Paul participates in that death, he trusts God to be there to bring him through it to new life. And so whether that looks like God delivering Paul from these specific instances of suffering that he's been through, as God had, or whether it looks a little bit further down the line to God ultimately raising Paul from the dead on that final day, Paul can trust that God is there to deliver, to bring life from death. So the death that Paul experiences now ultimately leads to resurrection life because it's participating in Jesus. That's why Easter matters so much. So there's just one brief thing that I wanted to note in closing. Um, we spent quite a bit of time on, on the sort of others-centered, self-giving nature of Paul's cross-shaped ministry. And I just wanted to point out that that same thing is in view here. Paul notes it twice in this passage. He says, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that's reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And so this vital aspect of who we are in Christ, of what it means to be a Christian, this participation in Jesus, being united to Christ, it's a participation in the other-centered, self-giving love of Jesus as well. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, it seems an odd thing to thank you for. But we do thank you for the ways in which our weaknesses reveal your power in us. And we pray that you would help us to trust you in those times of suffering, that that power would be made known. We pray that through all the different experiences that we go through as your people, that you would be present with us, that you would transform us to look like you and your other-centered, self-giving love, that we would participate both in your death and at the same time in your life in that way. And we ask, Lord, that in those moments, your power really would be manifest in our lives in ways that make it clear to us that it's not something we accomplish, that it's because you are present with us, because we, and that it's because we participate in you in the faithful death and resurrection life of your son. Amen. I had a couple thoughts uh, on, on Mother's Day. I wanted to, to honor that there's a kind of national holiday that's being celebrated now, and rightly so, in honor of mothers. But I've been thinking a lot about what it means to look at that through this lens of being resurrection people, the way that we've been talking about over the course of this this series, because in these doors, 
we have a different calendar. We celebrate different holidays. It's, it's Eastertide here. And so what, you know, how do we look at Mother's Day from the perspective of being God's resurrection people? And I, I um, as I was reflecting on this, my entrance into how to do that was in this, this time where, um, where Jesus is being, some, some, some people are attempting, are attempting to trap Jesus in Matthew 22. And it says that, um, it says the same day that uh, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> Sadducees, uh, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without having any children, his brother must marry the widow and father children for his brother. So there's this law in Deuteronomy that's basically in place to continue a family line of somebody who dies without an heir. That's the purpose of it. And so what the Sadducees do is they say, well, appealing to this law, let's say that you have seven brothers and one of them gets married and then he passes away without leaving an heir. And so the next son gets married, and so on and so forth, and all of them die without leaving an heir. And so Jesus, in this resurrection that you speak of, who will be married to this woman? And they kind of drop the mic, so to speak. Um, and so Jesus' response to them is, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And so I was reading a little bit in this um, uh, commentary by a biblical scholar named R.T. France on this. Because I was, I was, it's, it's kind of a, a complex teaching, so I was looking for some insight. And this is what I found. I'm just going to read him directly. He says, In the resurrection speaks not of the event of being raised from death, but the state of life which follows from it. So that in effect it means in heaven. Since the question raised has been about marriage, it's on that aspect of heavenly life that Jesus' answer focuses. But the principle could be stated more broadly. It's a mistake to picture life in heaven as simply an extrapolation of life on earth. The power of God creates something different, fitted to a life which is not temporary, but eternal. Sexual life is obviously affected by this since procreation belongs to earthly, not to heavenly life, where there is no birth, growth, or death. And so that's where we kind of intersect with this concept of motherhood or fatherhood and children. He continues, that seems to be the logic of Jesus' response as it relates to the problem of multiple earthly marriages. It solves the problem by declaring the marriage relationship to be a temporary earthly thing. But is this too high a price to pay? Those who have found some of the deepest joys of earthly life in the special bond of a married relationship may be dismayed to hear that that must be left behind. But note that what Jesus declares to be inappropriate in heaven is marriage, not love. So perhaps heavenly relationships are not something less than marriage, but something more. 
He does not say that the love between those who have been married on earth will vanish, but rather implies that it will be broadened so that no one is excluded. Our problem is that we, like the Sadducees, have only this life's experience by which to measure what is to come. We do not know what it's like to be like angels in heaven. I think, I think Francis' concept of, of broadening here is very much in keeping with Jesus' own teaching elsewhere, right? We've been talking about participation in Jesus this whole sermon, right? Paul will say that in him we received adoption as sons. There's a very real sense in which what God is doing in Christ is creating a new family. And this is something that Dave has talked about on numerous occasions. In Matthew 12, so earlier in that gospel, there's, there's, a, there's a, an occasion where, again, and Dave has talked about this before, some peop, Jesus is teaching, some people come to him and they say, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And Jesus' response is, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And pointing towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so that's why it's so common for the New Testament authors to address each other as brothers and sisters. Right? In Christ, we are all family here. And it's not just the language of siblings that we see, it's also parent-child language. So Paul calls the Corinthians his children. He also calls, he says that of Timothy, of Titus, of Onesimus. And John's most common way of addressing his readers is as his children. I think in 2 John he's using that term the same way he does in every other instance as he, as, as he greets a woman and her spiritual children. And so, as we bring this back around to Mother's Day, I would say this. Resurrection people, for all you women who have mentored, who have nurtured, who have invested in the lives of others here, in this family, we want to recognize you as the mothers that you are. If that language is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me.